Thank you. You can be seated. I want to ask the question this morning, and just looking at just a handful of things there on the screen, but here's the question that I felt in my heart actually a few weeks ago. How did we get here? How, how did we get here? In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, from the Message Bible, we read, that's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. No, this kingdom, this kingdom of faith, this kingdom, this king and his cause, this kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using us, and here's the words I want to focus on, irrespective of how we got here in what he is building. He's using us all irrespective of how we got here in what he is building. I want to talk today about how we got here. How did we get here to this Mission Sunday, which is our 10th Mission Sunday this year, and our 10th presentation on the, the screen? I mean, today we look back. We look back at a local church in the western suburbs of Sydney that over the last two decades has given $20 million to missions. How, how did we get here? I had the privilege earlier this year, as Carol and I were on long service leave, of walking my second Camino to Spain, to Santiago de Compostela. And this time, I had the privilege of doing the walk from Porto, Portugal. And uh, you know, uh, Santiago uh, is uh, uh, it's a great pilgrimage. The first one I did was six years ago with my daughter Carissa, and actually tomorrow will be six years ago that Carissa and I walked in to Santiago de Compostela from France, from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. But this year I had the privilege of walking it again. And when you walk the Camino, there's a little office off to the left and down some stairs where people go to receive their official credential that you have been a pilgrim on the Camino. And I've been down there twice now. And when you go down there, they ask this question. This is the question they will ask every single person that comes down to their office. How did you get here? How did you get here? And so what you do is you pull out your little pilgrim passport. And you open it up. And you show them how you got there. And uh, so you have your little stamps. And this first stamp here was from uh, Porto, from the cathedral in Porto. And they see, I started there. And then as I continued the walk, I would get another stamp here. And I spent the night in this little community or this little village. And, and so you pull out your passport to answer the question, how did you get here? Oh, you came on the coastal Camino from, you, you did the Portuguese Camino. 
And, and so you show them how you got there, and then they give you a beautiful certificate that says you are an official pilgrim of the Camino. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he goes up to the temple. And people recognize him there in the temple. And they start pulling him apart, to be honest with you. Thank you. You can take that down off the screen. Thank you. And um, so uh, a Roman guard rescues Paul from, from certain death. And uh, eventually, within uh, the next day or so, because there's a plot to murder Paul, he sends Paul to Caesarea Maritama. And it, the, the, the assault against Paul is so severe that a bunch of men have already dis- made a covenant that they will not eat or drink anything until they have murdered Paul. And so the uh, Roman centurion gets wind of it, and he gets 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 more spearmen. And to, they take Paul out of Jerusalem by night, protection, and they take him up to Caesarea. And there, of course, he stands before Felix. And within about uh, 10 days or so, the, the, uh, accu- the accusers come up and they begin to accuse Paul there in Caesarea. Well, their accusations are kind of pointless. They're decreeing, this guy can't live. He can't live. He's a plague. He's, he, he's just the worst thing that's ever happened on this planet. And so obviously, well, who did he kill or, or what insurrection? But the whole thing is about he believes that somebody that was dead is now alive. And, and so, you know, Felix is going, what the heck? And, and, and so uh, uh, eventually, uh, Felix, now Felix is married to a Jewish woman, and her name is uh, Drusilla. And we read in Acts 24 and verse uh, 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, and uh, she was Jewish, and they sent for Paul to hear him speak. Now, he's already spoke a few days before, and there's nothing that, uh, that can condemn him of, but he calls for him again, he and his wife. And so they hear him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. They hear him reason about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, and Felix gets alarmed. And he says, uh, go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. And so then we read in verse 26, and at some time, he hoped that maybe money would be given to him by Paul. So he often sent for him and conversed with him. Now watch this. When two years elapsed, two years, Paul is in prison. Well, Felix is now succeeded by Uncle Festus. And Festus comes. And Festus, because Felix, because desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix kept Paul in prison. So Festus is in Jerusalem. And the Jews know that he's the successor. And so they corner him and they say, would you send Paul back down here to Jerusalem so we can try him? And they'd already had an ambush set for that as well. And uh, Festus said, no, that's not right. He said, you guys come up. I'm headed up to Caesarea. Come on up with me and, and I'll hear his case. And so they all go back up. Now, two years later, we're we're doing it again. The Jews come to Caesarea. They're accusing Paul of everything. And Paul stands up and says, there's absolutely nothing to what they're accusing me of. And and so Festus says, well, would you be willing to go to Jerusalem to be, you know, uh, judged there? And Paul, 
said, I don't think so. I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I appeal to Augustus Caesar as a Roman citizen. And by the way, God had already told Paul he was going to Rome. So why not just go ahead and go to Rome? And so Paul appeals to Caesar. Now here's Festus having to send Paul to Caesar for, uh, for like, how the heck, what the, how did you get here, Paul? There's nothing here to, there, what are you doing here? And a few days later, Agrippa comes with his Jewish wife, uh, uh, Bernice, and, and Festus says, I'm sending him to Augustus Caesar, and I can't think of one thing to give him a reason for why I'm sending him. And Agrippa says, well, I'll hear him out. Let me hear him. And so the next day, you know, we read this in verse, uh, chapter 25. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who were present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. How did you get here, Paul? What the heck are you doing here? How are you even here? And so now in pomp and splendor, Agrippa... And the whole audience in their robes, they bring Paul in, in chains. And Agrippa gives Paul permission to speak. And basically says, Paul, how did you get here? And Paul pulled out his pilgrim's passport. And he showed him the stamps that brought him here. And he talks about his manner as a youth and his zeal for God as a young follower of, of God. He shows him his Jerusalem stamp. He shows him his Pharisee stamp. He, he shows him his, I want to stamp out the church stamp. He shows him the stamp that he got on the road to Damascus. And eventually, he shows him his Jesus stamp. And then... In one sentence, Paul explains to Agrippa and Bernice, to Festus and Drusilla, and to everyone present in the crowd how he got there. And here's what he says, verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I am here. Because I have been obedient to the heavenly vision. That's how Paul got there. How did we get here? In April of 1987, myself and Pastor Tom Messer and two men from our church of about 300 people in Yuma, Arizona, landed at Kingsford Smith Airport on the longest plane ride we had ever taken in our life. And what brought us here back in April of 1987 
was a heavenly vision. Pastor Noel Jean Messer, our pastor's wife, had a heavenly vision of babies falling out of heaven over a map of Australia. And people on the map had baskets trying to catch as many babies as they could. And in this heavenly vision, God spoke and said, get your basket down to Australia and get ready for what I'm going to do. And in August of 1987, Carol and I sold our home. And we said goodbye to both of our families. And we wrapped up three small children. And we filled up 11 of my old army duffel bags with our junk. And we became obedient to the heavenly vision. And it took three years to get 50 people. Three years. Three 40-day fasts on juice. Two hours of prayer every morning on my face before God, crying and praying and asking the Lord, how do we obey this heavenly vision? A thousand days to build a church of 50 people. The first two people saved in the first few weeks that we were here are sitting right up there in the corner, right there. But I felt like such a failure. I felt like we had never worked so hard for so little. I would, we would put the baby, Jojo, who was just on the screen a while ago with her husband there, David. We would put her in the backpack, and I'd go down one side of the street with her knocking on doors, and Carol on the other side of the street with the two small children, inviting people to come to a home Bible study. Or we just, we, I'd do letterbox drops till 10 o'clock at night. Honestly, the day we landed, we went out in the backyard, and birds attacked us. I tried to find a baseball bat to protect my children. They don't have baseball bats in Australia, so I found a cricket bat. And I was so discouraged. Three years working up to 100. Carol dobbed me into my pastor that I hadn't taken a day off in months, that I was working seven days a week, 10 and 11 hours a day to try, how do we do this, Lord? And we had the opportunity to go to Darlinghurst for an overnight in a, in a hotel, a, a gift. It was a little boutique hotel that someone gifted to us. And I think maybe James and Rhonda watched our children that night. And we went into the city, and I, I fell on my knees after three years. And I said, Father, I feel like such a failure. I wept. I said, I feel like such a failure. I've never worked harder in my life for such little result. And he spoke to me clear as I've ever heard the Lord speak to me. And he, he said, let me give you my definition of failure. Let me give you my definition of success. He said, have you obeyed me? Have you obeyed me? I said, oh, Lord. I said some really unkind things to Carol, and I was really short with the children. He said, no, I'm not asking you, have you completely matured in your Christian character? I'm asking if you've obeyed me. Have you been obedient? 
And I said, yes, Lord. We left everything we have. We left everyone we've loved. We, we, we've, we've obeyed you. He said, to me, that is what I call success. And here's what I call failure, quitting And so she wiped the tears from my eyes, and I wiped the tears from her eyes, and we got up, and we came back out, back out here to Penrith to obey and not quit, to obey and not quit, to obey the heavenly vision and not quit. Obey me and don't quit. And in the next 12 months, we went from 50 to 100. And in the next 12 months, we went from 100 to 200. And God began to move, and God began to, things began to happen as we were obedient to the heavenly vision. And then something happened. In 1996, another heavenly vision, completely out of my control, completely, I didn't have it, completely out of my control. Pastor Gordon Gibbs had a heavenly vision God spoke to him twice, once in Penrith and once in Perth. And he spoke to him in two ways, a dream and a vision. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you saw this week on Facebook, but the Western Weekender put this photograph up just the other day. I was, I'd already had this sermon written, and this photo came up on the Western Weekender, the Christian Fellowship Center in Orchard Hills in 1985. These days it's known as Imaginations Church. Well, Pastor Gordon Gibbs had a heavenly vision. And he approached me and Carol, and he said, God has spoke to me in a vision that you and your fellowship need to come here on this property and become the senior pastors on this property. I said, we have just asked God for an acre. He said, well, here's 37 acres. And Carol and I stood on this property. I can show you the spot right out, right past the car park out there. Carol and I, when Pastor Gordon Gibbs had this vision, and he presented this vision, just like Noel Jean Messer had a vision, and presented this vision to us. And Carol and I stood out there on that property, and God spoke to me, and he said, if you will focus on the nations of the world, I will focus on the needs of the house. He said, if you will make my last command your first priority, I will meet all of your needs here according to my riches in glory. How did we get here? By obedience to the heavenly vision. By obedience to the great commission. In Mark 16, 15, we read, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone, everywhere. This is our mission. This is our mandate. This is our message. Imaginations Church. Why are we here today? How are we here today? We are here because of obedience But we are also here today because of compassion. And that's on you. Compassion, a heart for others. 
that is in you, a compassionate heart that is in this house. We are here today because of obedience to a heavenly vision that we didn't ask for, but we've done our best to obey. And we are here today because of the compassion that is in your heart to care for other people, people who will never be able to say thank you in this life. And yet you care and you've given and you've had compassion year after year after year. You are the good Samaritan church. You are the good Samaritans of your, the compassion of your heart. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 33, Jesus said, but a Samaritan, a Westie. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him all beaten and battered there and bruised, if you know the story, when he saw him, he had compassion like you, like you. He went to him and bound up his wounds like you, like we see on the screen every Mission Sunday. And he poured in the oil and the wine like you've done. And he set him on his own animal like you've done. And he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. Compassion has brought us here. Obedience has brought us here. And compassion has brought us here. Jesus said in Matthew 18, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And the heart of this house has a resounding yes. Yes. Jesus said freely, you have received, freely give, and you have said Yes. We owe the gospel to every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl. Now, the greatest missionary that I have personally ever had the privilege of being on the mission field with is Charles Haupt. And Charles Haupt said this, the debt we owe to God is payable to man. We are here today at Imaginations Church on a Mission Sunday because of our obedience to God and your compassion for man. How did we get here? Obedience to a heavenly vision, compassion for our fellow man, but also, thirdly, God gave us a strategy, a strategy for faith, promise, giving a strategy to focus our obedience and our compassion into a life-giving action. We don't just talk about it. We don't just will it. We don't just think about it. We make a commitment. We make a faith promise to it. And God has given us not just an obedience and not just a compassion, but a strategy through the strategic faith promise giving we have been able, year after year, to give half of all of our income away to missions, to the poor, to the needy. Half of all of our income goes to missions through faith, promise, giving. Now, I don't know about other churches. I don't speak for them. I pray they're all being obedient to their heavenly vision. I pray they also have a heart of compassion. And I pray God's blessing them. And as far as I know, I've only ever been maybe in one other church 
and it was in Singapore years ago, that gave half of their income to missions through strategic faith. What is faith promise giving? Well, it's not our tithe. Your tithe is what has provided everything in this building. Your offering and your tithe is what has provided the personnel, the team, the staff, the facility. You're such a giving, generous church. And your tithe is provided for the house. And God's used your tithe as he promised that he would take care of every need we have here if we will keep the nations of the world as our first priority. But through faith promise giving, we make a commitment to the gospel going to everyone everywhere. And it's not just a half-hearted commitment. It is a serious, strategic, on fire, absolutely focused, totally all-in, sold-out-for-God kind of commitment. That's the kind of commitment that is in this house that has got us here today. That's how and why we are here today. And Pastor Eric Rogerveen taught me years ago. I went over to do a missions conference for him, but he taught me the three basic questions that we ask every time we fill out a faith promise card. What could I give? to rescue girls in Nepal? What could I give to feed 2,000 prisoners a day? What could I give? And then he said, he writes that number down. And then he asks a second question. And this is the big one. This is the bold one. This is the one that separates the, the, the boys from the men kind of one. What could I give up? And then when we figure out what could I give and what could I give up? To remove a thousand cataracts from blind eyes in India. Then we ask the question, and God, what could I believe you for beyond what I can do? And that's what makes it a faith promise card. And so, what does faith promise giving look like? Well, here's what it is it's a teenager in this church who says, Lord, I believe I could give $100 a month to missions. But I also believe with a little sacrifice on my part, I could make it 120. But I'm going to believe you, and by faith, I'm going to give you $150 a month of my income to rescue girls from trafficking and to build homes for widows in Burundi and to feed 2,000 prisoners a day in Bukavu and to remove 1,000 cataracts in India and to dig another dozen wells in Cambodia and provide heart surgeries for little boys and girls in Vietnam and to supply 100 children a day in education in Sierra Leone and to support our hospital in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Father, here's my $150 to help purchase motorcycles for church planters in Libya, to pay for the dental care of the poor in Israel, to construct church buildings in Indonesia, and to give vocational training to 46 abandoned women in a village in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Father, here's my $150 faith promise. And Lord, I'm using this to send seed crops to women to help them start businesses in Uganda, to print Bibles for the Bible Society in Israel, to translate indigenous language Bibles here in Australia, to plant churches in Asia, to build radio stations in Indonesia, to keep families together in Mexico, and to aid our church planters in Brazil to go deeper into the Amazon. Here it is. (laughs) 
we have a God-breathed, Holy Spirit-birthed plan for giving, faith promise giving. What could I give? What could I give up? What could I believe God for? Let me tell you what it is. It's one of our seniors here today on a fixed income that says, God, I believe I can give $20 a month to missions. But with a small sacrifice on my part, I think I could give $24 a month. But I'm going to add faith to it, Father, even on my pension. And I'm going to commit to $30 a month to rescue girls in Nepal and to build homes for widows in Burundi and to feed 2,000 prisoners a day and to remove 1,000 cataracts in India and dig wells in Cambodia and provide surgeries in Vietnam. Father, here's my $30 a month to help 100 children every day have an education in Sierra Leone and to support our hospital in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and to buy motorcycles for church planters in Libya and to help pay for the dental care of the poor in Israel and to construct church buildings in Indonesia and to give vocational training to 46 abandoned girls that Dr. Sothene has pointed out to us and to send seed crops to women in Uganda so that by the third planting they will have a prosperous business and to assist persecuted Christians right now in Afghanistan and to print Bibles in Israel and to translate indigenous Bibles and to do church planting in Asia and to build radio stations and to keep families together in Mexico and to aid evangelists in Brazil to go deeper into the Amazon. Here is my faith promise. Obedience, compassion, and a strategy. Faith promise giving. Let me tell you what it is. It's one of our businessmen right here saying, God, through our business, we can give $500 a week. But with some sacrificing and a little tweaking on our part, we could actually give $700 a week. But with our faith, we believe you will bless our business as we wrap our business around the Great Commission. And so we're going to faith promise $1,000 a week to rescue girls who are being trafficked in Nepal and to build homes for widows in Burundi and to feed 2,000 prisoners a day in a prison in Bakabu and to remove 1,000 cataracts from the blind eyes of India and to dig a dozen wells in Cambodia and to provide heart surgeries for little boys and girls in Vietnam. Father, through our business, here's our $1,000 a week to supply 100 children in education in Sierra Leone and to support our hospital where there's only two orthopedic surgeons for 300,000 people and one of them is ours and we're going to support and Lord, here's our $1,000 a week to help buy motorcycles in Libya for church planters and to pay for dental care for the poor in Israel and to construct church buildings in Indonesia and to give vocational training to 46 abused and abandoned young women and training them in a whole new career and to send seed crops to women in Uganda so they can start their own businesses. Father, here's our $1,000 a week to assist persecuted Christians in Afghanistan and to print Bibles in Israel, and to translate Bibles into indigenous language right here in Australia, and to do church planting in Asia, and to build radio stations in Indonesia, and to keep families together in Mexico, and to help send our evangelists in Brazil deeper into the Amazon. 
How did we get here? How have we maintained a long obedience in one direction for 36 years? Through obedience to a heavenly vision. Through compassion and care that is in the heart of the house where God's people gather every week. And through a strategy of faith, promise, giving. Before we left Yuma, Arizona, I spent a day in prayer alone with my Bible. I remember God gave me the scripture, and I wrote it down. Mark chapter 10, verse 29 through 30. I'll read it to you in just a moment. So a few years in, we're meeting over on the High Street Mall. We took the old snooker hall and transformed it into our church. And we had Wayne Myers preaching our missions conference, meanest missions preacher the world has ever seen. No mercy, mean, mean, mean. He just comes to plunder everybody and take everything. I've learned through the years before Wayne Myers comes and does a missions conference, I go buy everything I want to buy before he gets there. <laughs> because he has no mercy whatsoever. And uh, Carol and I had moved house seven times in eight years with three children. And we had moved house so many times that, honestly, it was, it was kind of ridiculous. But they had raised the rent on us. And we gave up the thought of ever owning a home. We thought we'd just lay that at the feet of Jesus. We won't even think about it. But after moving house so many times, we, kind of, we kind of both just had this thought in our heart. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just buy a house? And so we, we thought about it, and we, eventually we, we thought, well, maybe this is the Lord. Problem, you know, interest rates were about 18 or 19 percent. That's a problem. And the other problem is you had to have some money. We didn't have any money. We didn't have any money. But um, I think you couldn't even go to the bank back then without $10,000 cash. Come on, team. Come up here, please. And so Carol and I did something we'd never done before in our life, and I, I'm embarrassed a little bit. I'm embarrassed a little bit to tell you what it was, but it was start a savings account. We've never lived with a savings account. We've only ever lived to give. But we thought maybe we could start a savings account. We'd never done that before. Went to the bank. They gave us a little book. And every, t- every week, we'd go in there and put a few dollars in. They'd write it in a pencil, write it in a pencil, write it in. Does anybody remember those days? And you know what I saw? I'd never seen it before because I'd, ac- I'd never had a savings account before. All of a sudden, when I'd open it up, I'd go, wow. Wow. And every week, the wow got a little bigger and a little better until there was a lot of money, more money than we had ever had in our life in that savings account. Now, the church on the High Street Mall, some of you were there, it was right above the ANZ Bank. The ANZ Bank is where our money was, right below us, right below us. And Wayne Myers is preaching on missions. It was miserable. And I was miserable. And I had more money than I'd ever had in my life, right below my feet for us to buy a house. But I was miserable. And I got up and I took the microphone and I looked at Carol and I said, forgive me, baby. 
Forgive me for what I'm about to do. I said, I want you to go down tomorrow and take everything but $1 out of that account. Bring it back tomorrow and let's give it to missions and make the biggest faith promise we've ever made in our life. And instead of slapping me upside the head, she had this huge amen in her heart and walked into that bank the next day and walked out with $1. And here's what she would tell you to this day. She walked out of that bank with $1 and a house because she knew God would take care of all of our needs. So we gave all that money away and we made the biggest faith promise that we'd ever made in our life. And 12 months later, we built our home in Glenmore Park. Miracle after miracle after miracle. But here's the verse of scripture. Why don't you stand with me? Jesus said, and I wrote this in my Bible back in 1987. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother, or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, and sisters, mothers, and children, and lands. And yeah, there'll be some persecution with it, but so what? And then in the age to come, eternal life. I say amen to everything Jesus said in that verse. I say amen from the experience of my own life. Amen, amen, and amen. How did we get here? How did we get here today? And we're just on our way. We ain't arrived, right? We ain't arrived. We're just on our way. There's still more stamps. There's still more stamps because we ain't there yet. But how did we get here? Through obedience to the heavenly vision, through compassion. A church like, like the Good Samaritan Church that cares for people who will never be able to say thank you to you. And through a strategy, an absolute God birth, do it, make it happen mechanism strategy that keeps me from some sort of fickle, half-hearted, lukewarm commitment to giving to missions. No, man, this is getting on the line right here. This is the real deal right here. This is us putting missions right there next to our mortgage. This is us saying the matter, what matters is eternal life of, of, of people. This matters more than what I'm driving. This matters more than where I'm living. And so the faith promise saves us. It's not just us saving others. It's saving us from a shallow, narrow, empty, little, shriveled-up Christianity. It's laying hold of us as we use it to lay hold for others. And so this is Mission Sunday. And man, 
What I have done all my life after a mission Sunday is take up an offering. But we don't really do that much anymore. So what I'm going to ask you to do is bring your offering somehow today or this week. And let's make Jesus' last command our first priority. Amen.